This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we're back in the enemy camp again, sort of. We examined the thought of a figure, kind of hard to pin down and place on the political spectrum, and in theory and 20th century history in general. He's a figure who's become the locus of a lot of conspiratorial type thought, mostly because his death was intimately connected to Hillary Clinton. And since his death, the nation of Libya has been plunged into chaos and slavery. And nobody who ever did anything was held accountable. And so, we decided to look into the thought of Muammar Gaddafi. It's been a long time coming. The Green Book. Recorded on the anniversary of his death. He can't help but be in our thoughts. We'll watch the streets. You watch the skies, King. So I don't know if y'all listened to this, saw a little movie called Black Panther. Mm-hmm. But it's time time this week to talk about the real Wakanda. The <laughs> real little country called Libya. Where according to some memes I've seen, and those are the only research I did for this, everybody got a free house. Uh everybody got free every you know. And I most importantly, I guess the thing that actually kind of intrigued me about Gaddafi was like seeing these conspiracy things constantly being shared around about how he was trying to allegedly create like a gold-backed like at like African dinar that would be like stand as a currency that would be backed by like Libya's gold reserves and like their oil they you could only use like their their dinars to purchase oil from them and that this would somehow like break like American dollar exchange dominance on the global market or at least you know like pose a challenge to it in a significant way um wow yeah i've seen like like, yeah inverted jfk type shit (laughs) can you imagine if um if Gaddafi had crypto unstoppable well and but yeah i I, like i've seen this from a million places i've heard people tell me about this and i so part of it was i was just curious about how true that was and i did a little bit of research into it and it looks like it's mostly based on like speculation from an advisor to Hillary Clinton who passed her an intelligence report where he was speculating on then French president uh, Nicolas Sarkozy's motives for military action in Libya during the uh, protests against the Gaddafi regime. And that, that was like a big one in this guy's particular theory, but it's not it's by no means like accepted like doctoring amongst like intelligent analysts on the subject, right? Just kind of one guy's thing, and then that got kind of like picked up by conspiracy websites so much so that like the copy that I'm reading tonight's tonight's reading on, I picked up from uh, 911truth.net. They got a okay. PD, they got a PDF copy of this. I I said you guys a different one, Solid. but I also found, but I found the <laughs> one I googled to pull this up for the episode. Yeah, like 911truth.net forward slash other books forward slash 
Muammar Gaddafi Green Book English PDF. So, yeah, it, it is like a, he is kind of, particularly since the uh, since he was killed, he sort of became a, like a figure for conspiracy types. And I guess people mm. people who um, love the gold standard maybe more than they love America. <laughs> But who maybe or otherwise would not be particularly inclined to embrace somebody like Gaddafi, or in his like sometimes quasi-socialist um, leanings at points. But anyway, yeah. So we're reading the Green Book. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Now that I'm read it, um, I realized that was a stupid idea. Uh, <laughs> because why? There, what do you mean? No, there's this is. I mean, like I don't. I don't think I've said this about anything we've read, but like. There's literally nothing to be learned from reading. <laughs> I think it actually provides a great example of certain thing. You know, we can get into that, but I think it it really it's exemplary of just uh you know, this kind of weird anarchist theory that justifies that it kind of reads like participatory economics almost. <laughs> participatory economics. It reads like state and revolution. I I don't know. I got a Pericon vibe. No, honestly, it doesn't even read it it reads like it reads like if my dad tried to write a book or something. Like it reads like <laughs> <laughs> Well, hold on. So this could be some C, this could be some CIA slander. But supposedly Gaddafi wrote this around this time, around the time he started taking cocaine. Oh right? no, no, it definitely reads that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, that, that is hundred percent true. No, because it like, I mean, Gaddafi seemed like a coke guy for one thing. I know this this girl okay. who said like she was like his sex slave or something like that said he used to like do a lot of coke and like make her take coke and shit like that. And I I lend some extra veracity to that because he totally seems like a coke guy because everything is always just like. He just has like these grandiose things that he just wants to get started and then never really gets finished. Like the chapter, like many chapters of this book, which, <laughs> you know, will be like a page and a half and then it'll kind of end and then there'll be like a, a page break and then it'll go somewhere else. Well, some of these chapters are a paragraph. Right. He, and he just takes on some, some different subjects. You know, it's like, oh, here's the family chapter. Here's the religion chapter. That's my hot take. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the 500 is- word article. This is a blog. These are tweets. The version I sent you all was the version, I think, that's probably more official because the book officially numbers at 100 pages. But the version I'm getting off 911truth.net, um, they basically just put the text together, looks like in Word, and so it's like 33 pages. <laughs> so there, there's like, there's some serious, this like, was you know, fu- this was fucking school. required reading for Libyans. Old school, like middle school. I'm going to double space this essay. I'm going to do it, you know, in. Size fourteen font. Yeah, let's get these margins together. I'm I'm making I'm making the period size sixteen font. Yeah. So, but like I said, I mean, it. I just at the end of it, I just the speech from Billy Madison that the moderator <laughs> gives. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. I think it has a really soul. interesting history, though. Because God have mercy on your soul. It, it was, yeah, God have mercy on, <laughs> on Momar's soul. Yeah, RIP, by the way, because this, this is the anniversary of his death. 
Yeah, uh, he, so maybe we should have put that forward. He was killed. He was killed by that bitch. Uh, <laughs> Courtney uh, Love. 20, 20, 20th of October, two thousand eleven, age sixty nine. <laughs> Murdered yeah. by a nasty woman. Yeah, nasty woman. Yeah. I remember. I remember actually seeing it. Like, cause at one point, you know, I guess the other place I mainly heard like. Because I mean, we've all heard of this guy. He was, you know, he was made into like this cartoon supervillain. By oh right, no, yeah. they were they were talking about his obsession with Condoleezza Rice and memeing about his all female security guard. Yeah, the Amazonian guard. All ver- all virgin. All of this ridiculous guard. stuff was true about him, I think, but he it was definitely yeah. used to kind of justify Libyan intervention. Oh, there's no question. Adam Curtis uh, made that hypernormalization and has a significant section on. Gaddafi and this is that this is what the other thing besides those memes that kind of intrigued me about him was that Adam Curtis in the film presents him I think primarily as like a frustrated self-published author which is another reason why I wanted to read this because because he sort of he was one of the guys who really threw you know George W and Tony Blair a bone and said all right you got me I'm not gonna be the bad guy anymore I don't like Al-Qaeda and Took took responsibility. They talk about this in the film. Took responsibilities for some shit that he certainly had nothing to do with. And well, I mean, even in the nineties, whatever the nineties, even uh, Gaddafi supported a policy of reproachment with the West and privatization. Yeah, I mean, it, it was yeah, which makes sense. Like he was always trying to cut over whatever deal he could anywhere he can, which is what you know somebody in his position would do, but. Yeah, so basically a big but a big part of his deal that he cut with like Blair and Bush was that he need, he wanted to like distribute the green book and have kind of like western academics come and take it seriously. So he had people wow. he would he would go around he'd, Oh my like, god. Yeah. So I'm just imagining like some, you know, poor dude at Oxford or whatever getting like enlisted by MI5 to like pretend to give a shit about this book. <laughs> well, I think we should talk a bit about the origins, right? Because the Green Book was written in 1976 to give this ideological gloss to the cultural revolution that Gaddafi declared in 1973. He was having these tensions with another part of the Libyan state, you know, the Revolutionary Committee for whatever, you know, they call these all things, all these things get called the same thing. But um, right, right, right. some of the people he launched the initial coup with basically thought he was unstable, which, fair. And yeah. checks out. He uh, he actually told them he was going to resign, and then he goes to make this <laughs> televised speech, and he's like, "Rise up!" And, and launches this cultural revolution with all of these, you know, some some of the political structures from this book involved in it and stuff like that. It's basically the moment in the Wolf of Wall Street where he's like, "You know, I'm not fucking leaving." Yeah, he he remains in charge of the major decisions, but he actually does have these local committees formed that he took. Because there's these local committees that form the backbone of this whole third theory kind of thing. Yeah, the basic popular congress. It's it's like it's a yeah, it's like a crude form of councilism, basically. I mean, this this could be out of Jack Reed's uh, structure of the Soviet state. This diagram that I'm looking at in uh, chapter six. I mean, it it has to be said. The reason I brought up the state and revolution um, comparison is because of the way that he talks about these committees, basically as like the final realized metaphysical form of democracy. And everything else is a dictatorship. If you're in a, in a democratic country and a party that you don't 
that you don't like gets elected. You now living in a dictatorship. There's so many dictatorships in the world. Everything's a dictatorship except for this. Well, yeah, he basically argues that any any kind of any kind of mediation that right. like separates you from the government or whatever that that like that's dictatorship and that because we have this like system of councils it's it is purely of the people. Yeah. Well, so so the, anyway, like, to to go on though. Yeah. This was a this was supposed to be a revolution against communism was explicitly singled out, conservatism, fascism, atheists, the Muslim Brotherhood and capitalism. So he was really thrown at the dartboard there. Tall order. Oh yeah. Solid, you know, dialectical negation. Oh, of course. So, but, but this, anyway, to, despite the anti-communist overtones, so this is explicitly anti-communist uh, cultural revolution, Libya coordinated with East German Stasi at the time of this cultural revolution to further develop their secret policing programs to, I suppose, you know, probably even kill some communists, you know? That's what the East German police state was good at. But it's... um. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because this, this really does remind me of a kind of anarchist theory, but it's very in favor of the state kind of on that basis. Like, I thought the chapter on the nation state was probably the most revealing one. But, you know, what what, what were y'all's thoughts on kind of some specific content? I oh, mean, there's just, there's actually, like, so much to say, because Grant, this, like, I don't know, dealing with this text as a symptom or as a, as an exemplar, not a paradigm, but an exemplar of like, you know, tendencies in, in leftist thinking and the way that, I don't know, some arguments that I certainly agree with get sort of routed into, you know, a power structure that doesn't sound all that democratic. Right. Well, we were saying, we were saying before the recording, this is, um, this is, th- there's something kind of Bakuninist about this in the yeah. way that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. He yeah he ran the invisible right. dictatorship. So, yeah. So this is yeah. this right. is the invisible dictatorship. Jake, you were saying it's like, oh, I don't run this state. Gaddafi basically yeah. claims to have no yeah. formal title within the government yeah. after this revolution. Yeah, I, th- I believe, I believe. Yeah, his 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 his. his I think his, his the, what he went by was uh, brotherly leader and guide of the revolution of Libya. Like he was, like he was just a, he's, he's just a guy that people just come to me for advice. Like I, I've just got a lot of social capital. Like, what can I'm I say? not I'm like kidding. A, I'm like a village elder, you know? What is this? Occupy UC days, Occupy UC Davis. You know what I mean? Like this, this was exactly the kind of, um, you know, tyranny of structurelessness. He would have been an Occupy guy too, just with all of like his really like, like syncretic, like sort of grab bag of beliefs. Yeah, you know, no, I don't, even, I don't even call it beliefs really, but he he would get he would get jacked up about one thing or another. It's like, oh, um, IRA, you want some money? You have some money, IRA. Uh, P- Palestinians, you want some money? You have some money. Uh, some weird social group of the socialist group in the Philippines, yeah, I have some money. You know, like he was he was very open handed in terms of like who he supported. Um, like if you were bombing people, like he had a good chance you could probably get some money, or even if you just asked, it seemed like. Like I was gonna say. Yeah. Well, when I was talking about like Adam Curtis. I was gonna say like he basically he gave like he had the, he's trying to come up with this scheme to like arm like the uh, nation of Islam in the United States. Let's see what else here. Uh, the you know like the equality of classes thing that Marx always grills Bakunin for 
is totally right. He real. actually he actually critiques yeah. like proletarian ideas and the idea of the working yeah. class attacking the state because, well, the working class is going to put its own interests. Blah 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 blah. This is yeah yeah yeah. It, and and Sorel's sort of embourgeoisment critique of you know trade union representatives or any proletarian representatives inevitably you know become their own political class. And to Gaddafi's credit, he generalizes this from a sort of grand theory. It's like the iron law of oligarchy, really. Um, like Michel's uh, theory that, you know, any group of representatives is not just a class group, but, you know. So, okay, we have a Michel's uh, represented. We have uh, Sorel represented. Did I... Is this an enemy camp episode, Jake? This feels yeah. pretty squarely in, in like, uh, the enemy camp episode. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I was going to leave it ambiguous, but honestly, like, kind of reading about this guy it's in more detail, I was kind of like, yeah, this is, this is an enemy camp. Oh, well, I mean, he was a, he was initially associated with Arab socialism in a very big way, and, and he still yeah, pandered he, to that stuff. Yeah, well, you know, he, he, we should probably mention, yeah, he came to power basically as an officer in a pretty, mostly bloodless coup. The guy who was king before basically just said, just listen to these guys, it's fine, and they sent him off to Egypt. Um, I think he, I think he was like executed in abstentia, but it was never enforced. The guy died. Wait, executed in abstentia? You can do that. Well, they 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 ordered him to be executed, but was never undertaken because he lived. He was in Egypt and he never came back to the country. So, um, but I was I, I was gonna say like yeah, he was a part of that that sort of like pro post Nasser wave of like Arab nationalists, and he was a part of like an early effort to create like a you know, uh, pan Arab like national unit. In the Middle East, that well, right, the right. Syrians the didn't want to go for it either, or something like that. Yeah, it, it was. And it was so one of the many ways. Well, that other that whole people project... didn't trust Gaddafi. You know, like other Arab leaders, like didn't trust Gaddafi to have the kind of political delicacy. Nobody trusted him. Like nobody trusted Gaddafi. Like it, it's, you know, the I mean, like he he was the guy kind of he. He's so interesting, just like the the grab bag of people he would just kind of support. You know, he like, or it's interesting how he kind of like, once it was pretty much a hundred percent clear, like Arab, Arab nat, like Arab unity, Arab nationalism was a dead end. He just kind of turned to Africa and was like, "What's up, brothers?" Like he, like he, for the, he basically went. Like, then he's like, "All right, let's go. Let's try to get some. Uh, let's try to get some Pan African unity going here." Yeah, we're not gonna go Pan Arab. We'll go Pan African. Like, just give yeah. me some Pan something. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm flexible. We need a block, people. Which he's, which he is right about that. Like that would actually yeah. probably be a significant improvement for the people living there and probably for the world generally. Right, I mean, yeah, if you're talking nation states, like uh, a regional block is certainly in in a narrow, you know, short term, in a short term interest way. It's it's certainly... it's preferable to like warlordism. I mean, it'd be preferable to war. Like, it would allow them to probably develop their economies more. They wouldn't just be subject to like Western predation. There would be, you know, it wouldn't just be like warlordism all over the place. You know what I mean? Like, God, but they all had such they all had such weird, conflicting relationships to the core first world economies and and powers that you know they want. I think that these nation states wanted the flexibility to have whatever weird relationship to the west that they wanted to have you know part part antagonism part cooperation you know and then balance some stuff with the soviets too and you know i i think they would rather you know that that narrow-minded 
even shorter term interest than the short term kind of regional interest is uh is is at play here and and to again just people's skepticism of Gaddafi. Yeah, so that the the block stuff is another I don't know an inkling that this guy was at least familiar with you know a bunch of the sides of dissident you know socialism and stuff that is sometimes I don't know like that's some of which is outside the Marxist tradition some of which is inside the Marxist tradition that uh he marshals for all this I don't know it's like there's a there's a dialectical kind of um edge to the work you know he he uses the word uh, sure he uses the word but he oh, i mean oh, but like i th- <laughs> i think there's a lot of there are a lot of hegelian authors that understand hegel better that don't do something very different than this where you argue in a series of negations pretty much negating most options there or all options there and then sort of making an exception i i honestly thought this was a great i thought this was super hegelian um I thought it was really I thought it was really reminiscent actually of what Marx critiqued Hegel for on the state because it cuz Gaddafi in in the chapter on nation states starts by saying that the nation state is the individual's quote national political umbrella it is wider than the social umbrella provided by the tribe to its members and then he goes on to say that, quote, the national political structure is damaged when it descends to a lower social level. And then he tries to articulate this organic unity between the state and society by claiming, though, you know, he's basically saying we're going to universalize politics. Every every member of society is going to be part of politics as a citizen. You know, we're, we're all going to participate through these these committees, these basic committees that are, you know, every citizen is enrolled in. So he says, when political structure and social reality are congruent, as in the case of the nation state, it lasts and does not change. This is, um, this is Hegelian. This is, this is the stuff that Marx was critiquing Hegel on politics and the state for. Um, because... It's this idea of universalizing politics to be controlled by the whole people, right? And in practice, that unity actually could only be imposed by this local cadre, you know, just as anarchist conceptions, due to their similar ideas about empowering rather than abolishing politics, strike me as requiring this kind of eternal post-revolutionary anarchist political class. You know, you, you get to see in practice, we've got all the local bullshit, that people ask for, you know, but you've got these politically astute figures who actually puppet most of what's going on in those things anyway. And, and then on top of that, it's, it's, it's supposed to be this nexus of, you know, your, your, your family and tribal and all of these associations, those don't matter. You know, your, your entire everyday social existence disappears into your abstract citizenship in the state. Well, what he's trying to do is create like a... He, as you say, he's trying. He's trying to. What he's basically trying to do is create a polity out of, you know, a, this sort of this assortment of mostly pre-modern like social formations. Right. right. Well, I, I guess what I think though is, if you look at what communism is to achieve, which is more the integration of these levers of decision making into everyday life, 
rather than that, you know, everybody has this, you know, emancipated access to the political sphere. No, it's, 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 it's having, um, it's, it's getting rid of that public private divide, not, um, privileging one over the other. And so, well, I mean, like sort of like sometimes I've never seen a text that is so in line with the negative kind of more nihilist and anarchist like reading of like radical reading of Hegel but that is also so in love with uh tradition and family yeah that's where the, this chick it really gets crazy to push a little more here Grant is that like yes it is Hegelian in a lot of senses but what you described with a universal polity is explicitly what this is against this retains its um how you say it retains its like the 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 fidelity to sensuous existence by rejecting all forms of constructed artificial law and we need to look to natural law and natural law of course is god's um, law well it's it's god's law but what's so most people when they're going to god's law and natural law they're attempting to make a universalist argument and they're attempting to kind of like channel that legitimacy into their institutions and that not only is there i don't know not only is there like especially in a, in the hegelian sense right not only is it valid for here but it's valid like everywhere this is totally the best this is the highest level of of being whatever this rejects all forms of law that aren't based on tradition and all and basically tradition the torch is held by religion in gaddafi's text so there's a sense in which there's like a conflict between these these two things. And so like this abolishing of all mediation cuts in this like sort of anti-politics communizer sort of direction. And then you get the the big curveball where he's just totally affirming tradition and affirming the family. This is a this is a text that lionizes politics more than maybe any other text we've read, right? Uh, we've got a, a wonderful quote here because it's, it's so obsessed with the nation state. I mean, the answer is that the state is not a social structure like the family, the tribe, and the nation, but rather a political entity created by several factors, the simplest and foremost which is nationalism. The national state is the only political form which is consistent with the natural social structure. So this is not a, this is not a text that says, give society you know, power. This is a text that says the national political state is necessary to have an organic unity with society between decision makers and society. And so I, I don't see it as being different from that Hegelian. But, but Grant, you have to understand... But you have to understand, this is a form of state that has unmediated access to the, the people's will. You know, finally, it is the true democratic form realized on Earth. It is, it is a transcendent form. This is how he would justify, like, his role basically kind of running, like, the secret police and basically using kind of – because it's like, okay, hey, we're keeping factions out and, of this. And that, exactly. We're keeping factions out of this. What Hegel is saying is that – in the in the state you give up your private life and you have your public life as a citizen right here he says quote a political structure is corrupted if it becomes subservient to the sectarian social structure 
of the family, tribe, or sect and adopts its characteristics. And so individual, personal, private social life is, is not what decision-making is about. The political sphere is still alienated from those things. This is, I think, I really think this is classic what Marx was critiquing Hegel for in the early works. Yeah, bled over with this very extreme negative Hegelianism that is associated with, like, the left wing of communism. I don't think we've read something that's this inconsistent before. Like, it's been a while, you know, since we've read something that is this doubled over on itself. And, Grant, you're quite right that ultimately he expresses things in terms of, like, you know, politics and citizenship— but the form of argument, the fact that this, like, form well, that's, of see, that's what I've said about anarchism in the past is that, you know, with even with Duvet, my critique of Duvet is that he. Yeah. Yeah. Critique of Duvet. And this comes from the, the I don't, like the Zimmerwald Leninists. You know what I mean? The people that, like, looked to Lenin as providing, you know, essentially the solution to the crisis of, you know, so-called bourgeois democracy realizing that bourgeois democracy so-called you know maybe we don't even want to call it democracy because it's so far removed from the expectations of you know these german socialists who are writing under you know the kaiser like or you know writing writing in an autocratic setting you know these you know perverted forms of electoral institutions are so far removed from you know, what the ruling classes have been, you know, fearing for, like, the history of, you know, civilization, Western civilization, you know what I mean? Like, um, that that we need a, a higher form to to pin our hopes to. And, um, and again, I can't stress enough how much, you know, like, when I was a Trotskyist, I got to read State and Revolution, and I read Structure of the Soviet State, and they promised me that the Soviet state, even though they didn't believe in it, okay? They didn't, these people did not believe in the Soviet state because Lenin doesn't end up believing the Soviet state and kind of goes, Meh. you know, this doesn't make sense. And councilists, you know, are like, wait, but no, 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 seriously, dude. Like, <laughs> um, but, you know, there are people that sort of promised me this higher form of democracy that is, that is, I don't know, it's like teleported from another dimension. It just, I, I, I don't know. I, I got flashbacks, okay? This is this is like, a text which really um, it covers a lot of ground. What I was going to say about Duvet, though, was that I think this this yeah is an example of where instead of a critique of the political, you get a critique of power, and that's I think what you know. So so we're going to vest power in the political community of the people. Is this thing's solution to? these problems yeah well and you can see again he he this i think he also kind of embodies a lot of the contradictions of the sort of nasser era of the kind of loose alliance of socialism and arab nationalism he doesn't go like full theocrat but there's a lot of concessions to like political islam oh when when Gaddafi was 18 years old he got in trouble because he led a um, protest, which actually, as an 18-year-old, that's pretty impressive. Here's the thing. I do want to say, Gaddafi is an impressive historical figure. At 18 years old, he led a riot. Led, right? But, here's what he got in trouble for, smashing the windows of a hotel that served alcohol 
as retaliation for the fact that they served alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and then that's disruption of kind of religious natural ties, I, I suppose, if you were to bring it back to the book. It's haram. He is an impressive guy, though. I mean, just in terms of his ability to have done all that he did. Yeah, or, or that he even... It, there's some ways where it seems like he was one of the few people actually trying. Right. Yeah, because yeah. he he did he did make Oh, he was he one he was a true and, believer and two like, Libya's GDP you know, did go up. I mean, oh, yeah, he yeah, did redist- he did redistribute some degree of wealth. Oh yeah, yeah, literacy went up like there were and I was jo- I was joking at the beginning but there was, you know, a right to housing. Like there was a law where it's like you can't own more than one house and you know, people need to have houses to live in. And but I was going to say like he did try and like create like United States of Africa and then it seems like when he died like all that just kind of went out the window. When he died, like, a lot went out the window, and, you know, hey, Gaddafi might have been a lot of things, this book is silly in a lot of ways, but he does consistently oppose slavery. Yeah. And, um... And when he went away... (laughs) Slavery came back. Yeah. That's not false. And that, I don't know, like, so, confession time. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. Confession time, you know, when I was younger... And I, you know, was I was I was trying to support Obama because I, I wanted to believe I wanted to believe in universal health care through the Democratic Party. You know, Libya was the last U.S. intervention that while it was happening, I thought it was important in my head to be like, yeah, you know, Obama, that was the right call, you know. And I remember kind of scoffing at these like, you know, wacko anti-imperialists, you know, that that were standing Gaddafi so hard and I, oh, I can't believe Obama killed him you know and I, I I thought I was so smart um and you know looking back those wacko anti-imperialists kind of had a point well you know and and he wasn't subjected he wasn't subjected to any kind of trial he was just kind of shot you know it was very cruel actually the way the video was circulated well, yeah like the whole anal penetration yeah no it was it was humiliating. Oh, yeah, no, I think he was tortured. I mean, granted, he he definitely had other people tortured. It was, it was but, yeah, it yeah. was. The man had people tortured, but I think the way that we treat, you know, like for example, with George W. Bush, the way that you know how Ellen talks about, like, oh, we've got to be kind to people, you know, the way to be con- the way to recognize George W. Bush's fundamental humanity is not to be his best friend. It's when we try him for war crimes, we don't torture him, and that's the kind of thing I feel about Gaddafi. Right? It's like you know, like he did yeah. some horrible things. He worked with the Stasi to suppress political dissent, etc. Um, but I find the way the rebels treated him at the end of the day uh, not in line with my values, you know. And, and yeah, yeah, but like, but part, that was that's not, part, that's, not, that's not my kind of politics. <laughs> but that was part of what I found like visceral about you know, oh, the dictator is being torn down by the people he's oppressed, you know. And you know, imagine you know some of those militants that are tearing down that dictator. Maybe their sister got locked up or killed under the regime. Maybe their father. Maybe you know, like, and I I projected a sort of like. Well, I, I'm just saying, like, like when I was younger, I projected a sort of like, you know, libertarian, like, uh, no, li- and I'm not, cri- I'm not criticizing li- you for that. Li- I think that we we've all had, you know, contradictory views in the past. Yeah, not me. I, well, yeah. I'm I'm great. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, 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 for real. Like, um, you know, I thought like it seemed justified, you know, and I didn't want to accept what I consider still to be a sort of right wing narrative 
that like, hey, you know, you have a strong man like Gaddafi. Okay, you don't have democracy, but hey, at least you have order. Like, I want there to be, you know, a better world. I want everyone to have nice democracy. And so I, um, like, I, I just didn't really understand American imperialism as much as I thought I did at the time. And, uh, and really what happens to Libya after you knock down this figure is illustrative. And you, you can see a, a similar story in Iraq. Also, another, you know, figure who was a part of, like, the early, like, wave of Arab nationalism that, you know, in its failure, paved the way for the rise of, you know, political Islamic fundamentalism, you know? Right. And that's why people supported Ba'athists. That's why people stand, you know, um, Assad in Syria. That's why anyone ever thought Saddam Hussein was a, a leader worth supporting. It's because it put a check to political Islam. Which well, and even even like the people in the American state thought that those guys were supporting for periods, you know. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I mean, okay, yes, they supported it against the Irani regime while, um, you know, helping Saudi Arabia incubate, you know, Wahhabi Islam. <laughs> so, like, yeah. it gets complicated. But yeah, the point is that this is why people ever. Yeah, you know, this is why people like like, <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, it's, no, it's, I, I understand. I understand the impulse a lot, and some of it is just kind of, it's it's the same kind of impulse to like nine eleven trutherism, where it's like actually we did it, you know. So yeah, yeah. Be over there, you know. Like it's that's I guess when you're trying to argue against something, that makes a much more forceful argument to just go a hundred percent the other way. No, and like, Lexi, no, it's fuck you. honestly still tough to right <laughs> on on yeah something like Gaddafi but ultimately uh, it, you know it is for the you know I, I think that American and French meddling in you know listen Gaddafi Gaddafi was something that Gaddafi was something that Libyan society had to come to terms with uh, right by itself you know not through uh, NATO carpet bombing or whatever well, that's the easy call, right? Just don't support your own country going to bomb that country. No matter, you know, they give a real nice, like, song and dance about it. You, you can't trust but, them. Yeah, no, but at the same time, you know, Gaddafi did some horrible shit, so it's it's kind of, it's hard to root for him, too. It, well, it's, I mean, I think it's, it's symptomatic of, you know, just kind of the larger, like, tragedy of, you know, like, African history that... There aren't like any any major like re, you know revolutionary horizons as you might have seen in like you know Asia or, or Europe. So it's you know like the the rare figures that you get who really do try to instigate some kind of fundamental transfer transformations that could push things in a positive direction. It's it's such a mixed and like incoherent legacy, you know. Because um, yeah, he he was he was famous. He was friends with all people. Uh, he was also big boys with Nelson Mandela. And like supported them like when it was hard and when it counted, you know. Yeah, and this and this goes for you know Soviet backed or Maoist backed or you know anti-communist like leaders, like un unfortunately, like it's it's not just like our side. There's like a whole wave of you know nationalist leaders that um, you know that that fundamentally play an important role in political independence for you know the colonized world and uh it's hard as a communist to like a square exactly but the one thing you know is don't cheerlead your imperialist country when it goes to bomb one of these leaders
just don't do that. Learn my lesson. So where this book really falls apart 100% is when it gets to uh, women. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gaddafi's a turf. Be- begins to expand <laughs> on how women be. How women be doing it. <laughs> um didn't he have it didn't he have a all all female bodyguard or something like that yeah yeah that was yeah upholding and now in some ways again like the actual record uh you know they did open up like formal rights for women um after their revolution yeah no and Gaddafi actually too he made sure that um he made some kind of law that um women had to consent to a marriage and he banned certain underage right. marriages right. and things right. like that. Right. Um but you can see also kind of like the contradictions of this whole thing and microcosm in the women's section where it's like, yeah, women have all these rights and it's great, but like really they their main job is to be mothers because that's what's natural. You know, and anything that like impedes them from doing that is unnatural. You know, so he was like hundred percent like raw dog, like <laughs> hard hardcore like promoter of that. And 100%, like, yeah, like, the woman is female, and being female means she has biological nature. Like, he even gets to a section where he talks about, like, menstruation. He's like, men don't do that. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> you know? it's That's that's actually kind of great, because at the end, uh, let me see if I can find it, because it's, uh, I, I don't want to just, you know, here it is. Here it is. It's so good. Um, women are females, and men are males. According to gynecologists, women menstruate every month or so, while men, being male, do not menstruate or suffer during the monthly period. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm told by experts that this takes place. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I, 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 I respect science, so I, I take their word for it. Yeah, so after describing conception and breastfeeding, the man, on the other hand, neither conceives nor breastfeeds. End of gynecological statement. <laughs> he literally says that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, wa- I once heard, I once yeah. heard from a doctor... That that women have periods, and I, you know what? I believe him. Yeah, I know like seven women. Yeah. So actually, I just want to double back on uh, the economic section because I feel like the book, you know, like falls apart a little more there, and it's only because he rides a natural law straight to the Trinity formula that Marx critiques in Capital Volume Three, um, and it's you know, that's kind of glorious. He ends up with a th- he tries to articulate exploitation outside of Marxist terms, and he basically ends up with something very close to a neoclassical account of exploitation, where if you work beyond your needs to save beyond your needs, that's exploiting. Like, because, you know, that's, hey, that work is for everybody, you know? Um, which, you know, that fits with a kind of, uh, like, f- like, there's forms of exploitation in neoclassical theory that workers can be guilty of, you know? Um, and so this is part of his like equality of classes fuckery and he very specifically says hey listen you know like means of production and like the natural resources and like the worker hey everybody deserves a cut am I right like sounds like you know Adam Smith or Abraham Lincoln or whatever like when it comes to political economy um on 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 that level anyway but then you know hey socialism um a a few of these like very short chapters these like paragraph long chapters are are just like you know describing following from his theory that like need need that is like controlled by anybody else is exploitation right um 
then like you know talking about just the, the basics and housing and income small dogs barking um means of transportation like those those are like those could all fit on a page probably like like just chapters 12 through 16 here 12 through let's see 15 12 through 15 yeah um then he goes into land anyway the point being is that like this is uh this is a mess this is a hot fucking mess like (laughs) Well, and it's that thing where it's like he he wants to sort of in some on some levels it seems like he wants to kind of reify peasant society or you know like individual production. Hence, you know the thing like it was very apparently very easy to start a farm uh, in Libya. Um, but at the same time, he also has like this developmentalist bend that doesn't totally reconcile with that. You know, like he wants to have like this kind of natural harmonious society, but it's like how do you how do you square that with like the inherent disruptiveness of like industrial civilization? Oh yeah, this would this would make Uncle Ted shit himself. He points to technology as being an unstoppable accelerating force that was destroying like the working class as we know it. <laughs> right, but but also that it's going to inevitably lead to like the end of money and you know. Yeah, it'll it'll lead to the end of exploitation. Uh, eliminating profit is not a matter of decree, but rather an outcome of the evolving socialist process. This solution can be attained with when the material satisfaction of the needs of society and its members is achieved. Work to increase profit will itself lead to its final eradication. What, like doubling back on this page, it's in chapter 16, land towards the end. Um, he... He does, at the end of the day, come out on the side of unions, which, you know, considering his kind of view of class politics, I thought that might, you know, I wasn't sure how deep in the, in the enemy camp we were here. Well, he, he, he did actually, like, suppress unions at points, so. Well, well, good to know, but also there's a hint of that here. That uh, consequently, the aims of the producer strikes will change from demanding increases in wages to controlling their share in production, guiding by the green book. Guided by the green book, this will sooner or later take place. There's a lot of there's a lot of guided by the green book in this book. Yeah, there's definitely like really disruptive self promotion, like like an ad for the book you're reading in the middle of the book. Yeah, well, he a, a lot of a lot of points in this book are like my book is going to fix this. Well, the like the the red book was tremendously influential, so he's like I should get my own fucking book, dude. My book's green. This guy's a marketing guru. Well, and he literally like the the flag of the country changed to just like a green block. Damn. That yeah. is fucking branding. I've been struggling to figure out whether I should get my Twitch account and Twitter account and Snapchat account to all have the same, like, username. And I thought I was, like, in synchronicity. This guy's got it fucking together. This is, like, the spectacle in one this man. Dude's, like, this dude's titling his books like they're... This dude's titling his books like they're fucking Weezer <laughs> albums. Well, but there was that hockey team, too, right? Oh, yeah. We gotta get into that hockey thing. That's amazing. So what what was that? I saw the picture, but what was that exactly? All right. I'm just, I was very high when I read about this and did not remember putting this in the chat. So let's look up the Wikipedia article on Heinz Weifenbach, a German ice hockey executive, <laughs> best known for the 1987 advertising contract he negotiated in which his club, the ECD Iserlohn, advertised Muammar Gaddafi's green book on its shirts. In German, it's Das Grünbuch. 
I'm sure I mispronounced Kloon there. All right, cool. Oh my God. Oh, they they have them up in the German Ice Hockey Hall of Fame. They're they're quite great. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> anyway, let's uh let's find a choice quote from this. Yeah, I mean it is also worth mentioning, like in the later years, you know, I mean he he was actually like pocketing a good deal of money for himself and the people in his tribe and it seems like a lot of like his political rule was him like using kind of the personal loyalties of like his tribe members to you know basically get them to you know manage things in a way which is what often kind of ends up happening in these kind of chaotic situations like that was like stalin's great talent was he was really great at cultivating like personal loyalties and then exploiting them in like power vacuums um and yet you can sort of see that in like his strategy to develop like this kind of councilist system um, deprived of any kind of like formal political opposition um, allows him to, yeah, basically be the sort of invisible dictator of everything. Uh, did you find the thing? I found it. Uh, Wife and Box Club, uh, ECD Isolone, had been rumored to be in financial trouble and to make underhand payments to players for a number of years. Again, this is straight from Wikipedia. A number of players had previously been investigated by the German tax department for this reason. In the summer of uh, 1987, uh, the team found itself repeatedly rejected for an ice hockey, an ice hockey Bundesliga. Okay, it's some kind of elite ice hockey competition in the Federal Republic of Germany. Um, and it was eventually granted two weeks before the start of the season. It was only because the nine other clubs had pushed the German Ice Hockey Federation to grant it under the promise that they would not demand compensation if the club did fold during the season. At the time, the club was reported to owe the tax department about um, $3.4 million in U.S. dollars. The tax department did eventually demand outstanding tax payments, and they were not forthcoming, and the club declared insolvent. Following this... Weichenbach declared that there was no need to panic, as he had a sponsor <laughs> who was willing to support the club with, okay, a Deutschmark, 10, 10 million Deutschmarks over the coming years. The sponsor turned out to be the, arg- the organization marketing Muammar Gaddafi's Green Book, the Center for the Studies and Researchers of the Green Book. And so on the 4th of December, uh, when are we going to make a mo- when are we going to make a movie about this? When are we going to make yeah. the, the studies for the the center for the studies and researches for you know the swamp book, you know? Like when are, we can make we could make a, an Emilio Estevez movie about this, but we- I mean, reading about this guy makes me wish even more that he was still alive just cuz I feel like we probably could have talked him into like giving us some money. Yeah. <laughs> or I mean, he could like help us with our Patreon for real, like yeah. You know, you think those I mean, Patreon little like email tip lists are gonna help you? No, no, no. You get the fucking. But master. where is the under? Where is the underdog Disney movie about this hockey <laughs> team with the fucking oh, yeah, book yeah. on their shirts? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what yeah. I'm talking about. So on December fourth, 1987, ICD Isolone took to the ice against SB Roseheim with advertising for the Green Book on its shirts. Reportedly, the club received. $900,000 for the advertising of the book on its shirts and it, in its arena. And so the... the uh, <laughs> So it wasn't just on the shirts. They had they probably had signs up. They put it... They advertised it in the arena. And, un- <laughs> you know, unfortunately, the uh, social fascist German Ice Hockey Federation reacted promptly 
banning the club from using the Green Book as a shirt sponsor on the grounds <laughs> that religious or political advertising was illegal in German sports. For the following game, the, the, the team returned without a shirt sponsor. It was also the club's last game as the administrators deregistered it from competition. Um, Damn. So basically they were silenced for telling the truth about the yeah, so that's, that's more like the end. Of, that's more like the end of the bad news bears, I think. <laughs> so Weifenbach, however, continued his flight for the club's survival. Excuse me. Weifenbach, however, continued his fight for the club's survival. And he wouldn't give up just because some suits wouldn't let him advertise yeah. for the Green Book. He organized a flight to Libya for himself and 25 journalists to meet <laughs> Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi signed copies of the Green Book for the visitors, but may have known very little about the deal, asking, according to one of the accompanying journalists, what the name of the tennis club is that he was sponsoring. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was one of his guys who came up with that, like... That's amazing. Like that, that you know, that seems like something you know, like a local, you know, auto dealer would do. Like, oh, we'll sponsor a sports team. Yeah, this yeah. is it's this like, is it's like it's like the most. It's got, it's like a very quaint form of promotion. It is. This is used car salesman like uh, uh, socialism. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start funding uh, Gaddafi little leagues. Like, just, <laughs> yeah. That's what our Patreon money needs to start going to is just like, you know, your little your little American baseball little league team. We're going to start yeah. trying to print the green book. It's like it's like setting up an info table and putting like one of those like inflatable wavy guy things next to it to like attract attention. It's like putting um, ads for your own TV show in your TV show. Like I said, I mean that and that does kind of show the frustrated author part side of, of Muammar Gaddafi. I didn't realize that I would be getting like a lowdown of the psychological profile of most of the American left, you know, <laughs> when I picked up the well, green I, book, but I, all things I don't know if it's most, are answered I mean, by the green book. I, I mean, it's funny too, that he this was a sports team. Cause apparently he hated sport. Like the last section, the whole thing ends rather incongruously, like with just a section about how sports are bad and oh, like, yeah, you should be, that's right. You should be, you should, you know, it, it's like a kind of every parent's like critique of their kid watching Twitch. Like you should be playing it. You shouldn't be watching somebody else play it. Right. Right. And there, but there is, I mean, I, I feel like he does kind of like, this is something I have kind of thought of, you know, the sort of like society, the spectacle, For and sure. it's like this alienated thing to like sit and watch, you know, other people play sports or whatever. There is something about it, you know, especially like people that used to do stuff and then they watch people just doing that thing. You, yeah. you, you do get that sometimes, you that feeling of like, hey, like, you know, you could let out this creative energy, too. It's not just for other people, you know? Right. Like, well, if you do look at like, like, I watch sports sometimes and like you see yeah, the, people yeah, and the yeah. fans and you're like, yeah, these people would kill themselves if they tried to go out and do this. Like their, <laughs> their, knees would, their knees would immediately blow out after like an hour. It, it is something that like I noticed about sports like when I, a lot when I was younger. There was like us and it, there was something that kind of freaked me out about it. I, it was hard for me to articulate then, but I guess it's like, I don't know. I, I want like a form of life where I can uh, orient towards something that is seems like <laughs> approachable for me. And, you know, if I'm going to be really into something, <laughs> yeah, be something I could do. But when you see some like superhuman feats of like athletic strength or what or, or, or achievement, you know, like it, there is an awe inspiring thing that goes on. And I think it's part of the healthy, healthy breakfast. So uh, do we have any other thoughts uh, before we close the book on the real T'Challa? Uh, Mumar, Muhammad, Abul, Minyar, al-Gaddafi. 
uh, great guy would have thrown us all in prison, but um, especially me. Yeah, me. I mean, I actually, like, I just like, I thought... just even being a Marxist was enough. But yes. Oh yeah, you're gone, dude. Sorry. He he got along with Tito. You know, he and Tito were buddies. Is that right? Yeah. Well, Tito had power. Yeah, it's true. I don't know. I feel like I feel like actually I don't know if I went if I went there he met me I feel like we'd get along. Right. Yeah. No, I feel like I could I feel like I could I could charm Gaddafi, but um if I kind of spoke my mind eventually things would kind of go south. I do definitely think like I, it seems like on some level him and Trump would get along but they I think they would hate each other. And we know they did actually hate each other. I think Trump tried to like screw him on like some deal where he was like setting up a tent. I don't know. I could see I could see today. I could see now. No, I feel like now I feel like Gaddafi's like alignment would be I don't know I mean maybe he could do it in the way that he sort of like warmed up to it would be uh, kind of or whatever yeah it would be kind of like Iron Man two you know Iron Man two there's like a, a drunk like frenemy connection you know that's what it okay. would have been like I'm kind of now that you mention it I I do feel a little robbed of the world where Muammar Gaddafi and Donald Trump are in power at the same time. Mm-hmm. And could like you know sit down for for that conference. I do feel well. I do. Feel Gaddafi was he there. did do he did do dirty work blocking like northward like African immigration. So right, and he he did he did definitely like go hard anti ISIS anti. Uh, and he even like towards the end of like when things were falling apart, like he claimed like this is Al Qaeda influence, which it kind of was. But also like he said like insane shit like oh these these kids are all on taking hallucinogens and that's like causing them to go crazy. <laughs> it was really uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I could yeah. I could see I could see Trump being like Gaddafi is just trying to do the best for his people and he's going to fight ISIS and you know I could I could yeah. see it. It's it, it's not beyond the pale. yeah on that level. If they had a problem with each other, it would be the narcissism of small differences. <laughs> yeah well it's kind of like that's the thing like it's so weird with trump because like apparently like his falling out with epstein <laughs> when they did have a falling out was they were both trying to buy the same mansion from this guy yeah 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 and it it, it got real personal like they were they both like started like talking shit about the the guy oh, man. about each other and like oh he doesn't have the money he's fucking broke dude he, you know and it just got increasingly acrimonious and that's what caused them to to go their separate ways. Yeah. What, um, I mean, the most wh- rich guy shit ever. Well, I mean, like, you have to wonder what, you know, moves the needle for someone who can be friends with Epstein. Uh <laughs> Yeah. Ask Dershowitz, too. Yeah. All right. I mean, I got, that's, uh, I'll probably think of other stuff to say about this guy later. I'm a fascinating figure. Um, a Bond villain. A rogue. A rogue. He was, he, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like the term rogue state was almost certainly invented for him specifically. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, one one of those Bond villains where you're like, oh, like that that was really well portrayed. I feel like uh, they did his motives well. Yeah, definitely seems in the chaotic category in terms of alignment. Um, evil, neutral, I'm not sure. But he's certainly in the enemy camp. All right. Well... That's it for this week. That's our show. Whole lot of, whole lot of, uh, whole lot of thoughts. Whole lot on. Uh, honestly, I it's been a, 
It's been like a week since I had finished editing this. I'm just recording this intro now. I actually don't remember the episode that well. Um, but I remember I enjoyed doing it. You know, I feel like it came out pretty good. I don't know. You can let us know what you think. Um, you can contact us on social media, Twitter, uh, Insta, uh, Facebook. You can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. Uh, next week, we're uh, talking a little bit about the uh, collapse, disintegration, implosion, goof em up, uh, known as the end of the USSR. What happened? This is something I've been thinking a lot more about lately, and I want to uh, investigate like the different like reform attempts within the USSR, particularly the Gorbachev and Khrushchev eras. So we look at a couple pieces next week. Uh, one is by Hillel Tickton, whose stuff we read a while back. But this is a short piece we read, Theories of Disintegration of the USSR. And then the other, we're looking at a piece by Christopher J. Arthur, titled A Clock Without a Spring, Epitograph for the USSR. So, that's uh, that'll be pretty good. It's going to be some good stuff. And then, the episode after that, we're going to do... Um, we're going to do a Joseph Dietz gen piece entitled, um, the fuck was it called again? My memory's fucked. Uh, the nature of human brain work. Uh, so I got, I got a couple weeks to come up with some, some brain jokes. I got some time. Uh, one other bit of business to address. Uh, before before we wrap it up 100%. Uh, Rosa retired from the program uh, a few weeks ago. There wasn't really any drama with this one. She just, you know, has other stuff in life to deal with and wanted to focus on other things. So, uh, Godspeed, Rosa. Um, I think she's going to keep writing for Cosmonaut. You can read her stuff over there. Uh, yeah. So uh, until next time, keep uh, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>